Sometimes Harry Winter hated his job, and today was one of those days. Even though it was October and the days were supposedly shorter, he'd still been woken up at some ungodly hour to help out on the farm, which might involve feeding the livestock, milking the cows, mucking out the stables, or any one of the other million jobs he couldn't actually remember agreeing to do. Still, he couldn't complain. Not really. He was doing it all for his father, after all. Life hadn't exactly been easy on either of them since his mum had died, and they were managing to get through it all, somehow, together, one day at a time though it never really helped when some of those days seemed to drag more slowly than others. Take today, for instance. Morning now seemed like a lifetime ago, and Harry hadn't exactly achieved a vast amount in that time. At least it didn't feel like he had. Not that his job for the day had been a particularly easy or exciting one. He'd been sent out to scour the fields, looking for stones and rocks, anything that might help repair some of the walls around the farmyard. He'd even taken a wheelbarrow out with him, just in case he got lucky but there wasn't anything out there to get lucky with. Just pebbles and grit and dirt. Nothing you could use to mend a wall. No, for a job like that, you needed something heavier, bulkier, more substantial. That's when it struck him. There was a landmark just outside the village, like a mound of rocks heaped together in the middle of nowhere. No one could ever remember why they were there, just that they were. Had been for as long as any of them could remember. Lucifer's Tombstone, they called it. For years now it had been one of those strange sites steeped in local legend and superstition. Swamped in the kind of stories conjured up to make an otherwise unremarkable, some might even say boring little village, seem somewhat more exciting than it actually was. At least that's what Harry Winter had assumed before today. As he trudged through the thick sloppy mud beneath his feet, he could just about see the sun dipping away behind the hills ahead of him, its golden glow slowly giving way to darkness. Somehow, an entire day had already passed him by, but he could still be quick. He knew where he was going, after all, and when he got there, he realised that the mound wasn't quite as large as he had remembered, so it would take him even less time to shift. If only he'd thought of this earlier. Harry started heaving the rocks across to the wheelbarrow as quickly as he could, placing them gently on top of one another, trying to make them balance somehow. But they never did. He never even noticed the earth stir beneath him until he went to shift the final layer by which point it was already far too late. A hand thrust through the soil without any warning, cold and clammy, knocking him off his feet, its long claw-like fingers clutching onto the remaining rocks for support as a second hand burst up, twitching alongside it. Harry watched in horror as some unearthly creature hauled itself up from beneath the ground, grunting and growling, watching him as it rose from its grave, covered in grime, reeking of decay. He tried to run, but couldn't. His legs refused to move. Then he heard the creature laughing, its aura flaring angrily above him, bathing them both in an awful crimson haze. The demon had been disturbed, woken from its tomb. And Harry knew then that this was to be his very last day on Earth. The day that darkness dawned. Doctor Who, The Rising Night, by Scott Hancock, read by Michelle Ryan. The doctor's eyes snapped open and he woke with a start.
He wasn't used to waking. He never normally slept. So it took him a few seconds to work out where he was. Or rather, where he might have ended up. He tried to remember what had happened to him, but his mind ached, his head throbbing with an all-too-real pain. What had happened to him exactly? His vision was blurred, but he could still hear voices muttering above him. People gathered together, studying him, talking in hushed tones like they'd never seen a man before. At least not a man like him. He could tell from the way their voices echoed that he was indoors, and he was pinned to the floor. He could feel a pair of strong human hands holding him down. Still, could be worse. At least the floor was quite comfortable, and they'd gone to the effort of lighting a fire. He could just about feel the heat from it, blazing away somewhere behind his head. Then the doctor's vision began to clear, and he found himself staring up into the faces of at least seven officious-looking men, all dressed in a smart array of waistcoats and breeches. Eighteenth-century Earth, the doctor smiled. Got to be. But the men standing over him couldn't see why he was smiling. Instead, they just glared back at him, and the doctor felt his skin slowly begin to crawl. It is risen, announced one of the elders, his eyes narrowing as he met the doctor's gaze. Tell the townsfolk, our demon is finally awake. Not the best introduction in the world, the doctor thought, not by a long way. Nice to meet you too, he muttered. Three weeks had passed since the death of Harry Winter, and still it was night over the village of Thornton Rising. Not once in all that time had a new sun threatened to rise, not even for a moment. No new days, no new dawns, only darkness. Ever since the night of Harry's death. Abraham Godchild watched with fascination as he rode towards the village. He watched as the day was swallowed up by darkness, pitting him against the vicious void of night. Just over a week ago now, word had reached London of the strange circumstances that had befallen Thornton Rising. That it had been consumed by darkness, cut off from the rest of the world. That no mortal man could enter. And so Godchild had found himself dispatched by His Majesty's officers to investigate. If such a thing was proven to be true, why, it could only be the work of the very devil himself. Thornton Rising would be removed from every map, its history struck from the records, post-haste. As far as the king was concerned, it would never have existed, and the entire area would be declared property of the crown, quarantined the second that confirmation reached his ears, and Abraham was determined not to let him down. Even now, as he rode across the moors, he cut a dashing figure in the night, and he knew it. Tall, fit, clean-shaven, foppish chestnut hair tucked neatly away beneath a fashionable tricorn hat. His clothes fashioned from the finest satins and silks. Truly a man on a mission. And a rich man at that. He had been selected personally for this task on account of his dedication and devotion to duty. A loyal servant who had repeatedly proven himself capable of keeping his head in difficult situations and who could hold his own against the common man. And yet, now that he was here, 
now he'd broken through that fabled veil of night, a shiver ran down his spine, a deathly chill he couldn't quite explain. It was almost as though something was deliberately allowing him to enter, luring him in, closer and closer. But it felt wrong somehow. He could sense it. Something in the shadows stalking him, studying him intently. Something that didn't correspond with his understanding of the world. Something alien. He slowed to a trot, the earth now wet and sloppy beneath his horse's feet, and once again peered ahead of him for any sign of the village. But there was nothing. No sign of life at all. Only night. An all-consuming darkness that devoured everything from sight. Everything except a tall, blue, wooden box. I told you I came here in the TARDIS, the doctor insisted. Now all I want to know is how I ended up here. The voices around him grew louder, and the doctor's simple request was drowned out in a sea of accusation. A myriad of voices demanded impossible answers from him, hurling their abuse, their words echoing off the walls of this makeshift prison. There could only have been about ten different men in the room with him, the doctor thought, though the frequency and volume of their accusations made it seem like there were hundreds. He looked up at the men, studying them all from where he lay. He could tell they were wary of him for some reason. Even though they had him as their prisoner, they were somehow terrified. What did they make of him, he wondered. What did they think he could possibly do to them? And why did they think he was any kind of threat anyway? Maybe a bit rude sometimes, but he was nice enough to people, usually. Of course, the biggest question right now was, why was he there at all? He hadn't meant for this to happen. Not that he could remember, anyway. As the doctor fought for answers, he found himself bombarded with a million more voices, spilling out from every corner of the room all at once. What was he? Where had he come from? Why was he here? Was their lord displeased somehow? The doctor's brain strained hard to decipher all these questions, his mouth struggling even harder to answer them. And every time a new one was asked, the doctor devised yet another to combat it. Then a single voice cut clearly through the darkness, and the room gave way to silence. All except the doctor, who could still be heard blathering away to himself, just a second or two after everyone else had stopped. Gentlemen, the voice demanded, leave that man alone. There was a gasp from the crowd, and the doctor grinned as he felt the two men pinning him down immediately relax their grip on his shoulders, hauling him up to a sitting position on the floor. Still, the doctor couldn't see his rescuer. Then the voice spoke out again, trapped at the back of the crowd. Let me see him, she said. It was a woman. Young, yet confident, the doctor thought. And from the initial reaction of his captors, clearly one they were already well acquainted with, for better or worse. He watched expectantly as he heard her footsteps approach, the crowd parting neatly in the centre, letting her through. Her short, petite frame a marked contrast to the tall, powerful bodies that surrounded her. Her clothes were simple and muted. A chocolate-brown gown closed over a lighter-coloured petticoat, complementing the long chestnut hair beneath her bonnet. She was probably in her early twenties, the doctor guessed. Her face was still fresh and healthy, her figure slim. She stepped forward, taking the doctor's hand in hers, pulling him up gently from the floor to his feet. Thank you he whispered with a smile. But the woman didn't react. 
Instead, she simply looked the doctor up and down, as though studying him, his manner, his clothes, his hair, when one of the older men abruptly stepped between them, blocking their views of one another. Charity, please, the man objected quietly, struggling to remain calm in front of the stranger. Charity, the doctor grinned, interrupting their conversation with a yelp of approval. Nice name, I like it. The old man turned to face him, a disapproving expression across his face. Sir, I bid you be silent, he demanded, and immediately the doctor did as he was told. Then he noticed Charity smiling at him, ever so slightly, just enough to reassure him. My dear, please, you know you shouldn't be here, the man continued. Won't you please return home and lock yourself away, for our sakes, if not yours? But already even the doctor could see this man was fighting a losing battle. I thank you for your concern, Mr. Tully, Charity told him, as she took the older man gently by the arm, ushering him back into the throng of men behind her. And yet I'm afraid I cannot do as you would ask, for I fear this man is not all that you believe him to be. Oh? the doctor asked. No, Charity answered, shaking her head, turning round to face him. You disappoint me, sir, she smiled. They told me you were a demon. Really? The doctor's eyes boggled now. Why would they go and say a thing like that? Because, sir, another man interrupted, you do not appear as any other man we recognise, and there have been no other men to arrive in this place, not for over a month now. Charity felt the frustration rising in her voice. Mr Hopkins, please, she insisted. This man is not a demon. Then explain his clothes, another younger man demanded. My clothes? The doctor objected. What's wrong with my clothes? Janice Joplin gave me this coat. They are strange, the man continued. Unnatural. All clothing is unnatural, Master Higgins, Charity pointed out. And strange as his apparel undoubtedly is. Oi, the doctor yelped. It does not automatically signify a demon. Charity paused momentarily, waiting for the men to settle before continuing. This gentleman could be any number of things. A demon, an angel, perhaps just another ordinary man like yourselves. The room fell silent, and Tully stepped back towards the doctor, more cautiously this time. Are you an emissary of our lord? he asked. Well, the doctor hesitated, looking to Charity for approval before he spoke. I'm here to help, if that's what you mean. Definitely not a demon, then, another man yelled from the back of the room. Nope, the doctor replied. Just the doctor. Then enlighten us, sir, Higgins demanded. Tell us how you came to be discovered on the moors. You found me, then, the doctor asked. But the men refused to comment. Tricky thing, amnesia, the doctor explained. The mind normally forgets things for a reason. You don't want to force it. Could do all kinds of damage if you did. Do not dare to mock us, sir, snapped Tully, who was by this point shaking quite unsteadily on his feet. Whether through anger or fear, the doctor wasn't sure. You must agree we have shown you due mercy and consideration up to now. Do not give us cause to reconsider our stance on the matter. It was then that the doctor realised how scared they were. All right, he agreed, closing his eyes. I'll see what I can do. And with that, he cast his mind back. Back to before he arrived in Thornton Rising. He remembered being alone in the TARDIS travelling back from the fortress on Acropolis, when the ship's ancient engines ground to an impromptu halt mere minutes after it was plunged into the vortex. 
the whole of time and space at his fingertips, and the Doctor had landed on Earth. Again. As the TARDIS settled back into reality, the Doctor threw open its doors and stepped outside. Within seconds, his trainers had sunk a good inch or so into the thick, sloppy mud of the Yorkshire Dales, cold, wet raindrops lashing across his face. The Doctor wasn't impressed. He quickly retreated back into the warmth of the TARDIS console room, hauling his long, warm coat over one of his skinny pinstripe suits, trying his best to be practical. There had been a time, he remembered, when the rain would never really have bothered him, when he'd have strode headlong into any danger, in any weather, any time, any place. But that's when he'd had someone to impress. And now the rain just reminded him of Donna, of the night he'd taken his best friend home for the very last time. Back to Wilf and Sylvia. Even now he still wondered what she'd make of each new world he landed on. The things she might say, the things they might do. The doctor shivered at the thought. Couldn't help it. And wrapped the coat tightly around his chest as he stepped outside, pulling the TARDIS doors behind him. It was black, cold, his feet already drenched. He tried to work out where he'd landed, his eyes roaming across the sky, searching for something he might recognise, something that might give him that little extra clue to where he was. But there was nothing. No planets, no moons, no constellations. Not a single star. A little bit odd, he thought. Even as he breathed, he could taste the air around him. A flavour he recognised. It was Earth, almost certainly. But there was a distinct lack of pollution, if it was. Pre-industrial revolution, perhaps? Which probably put him somewhere in the 16th, maybe 17th century? Possibly even the 18th at a push. What do you reckon? he asked, patting the TARDIS affectionately on its side, when a slender hand had wrapped itself coolly over his shoulder, frosty breath slithering down his spine. Before he had a chance to turn, the doctor felt a second hand snaking along his neck, ruffling his hair, cold, damp fingertips grazing gently across his temples. There was some kind of force creeping into his mind. Instinctively, he realised what was happening and reached to rip the fingers from his head, to break the link, when suddenly he felt himself drawn deeper away from his own memories, away from reality. He was somewhere new. As the doctor struggled to remember, he felt new memories forming in his head. His thoughts shifting, perceptions changing, like he was in the mind of something else entirely. The doctor could see the last few moments of Harry Winter's life played out again and again, over and over, as though he was looking out through someone else's eyes, the eyes of a killer. The doctor could see Winter begging for his life, bargaining with a force that had no concept of mercy or compassion, that look of terror etched across his face even in death, only ever thinking of his father, hoping he might never disappoint. Then the doctor saw it. A creature reflected in Harry's own eyes as he blinked. Just a flicker of the dark force he'd released. The same presence that was in the Doctor's mind. Right now. But the Doctor couldn't make it out. Not clearly. The image was too faint. Just a flash of pale skin. Gleaming white beneath the moonlight. Fangs bared. A sinister grimace slicing across its face as it pounced. The young man scrunched his eyes up tight through terror. The image of his attacker lost beneath the screams. Then the doctor saw another man riding across the moors to his death, 
his mind still trapped behind the creature's eyes. Only these weren't its memories. Not anymore. Whatever the doctor was seeing, it was happening there and then, here and now. And there was nothing he could do to stop it. A sudden chill shot down Abraham Godchild's spine, like someone had just walked across his grave. He rubbed his hands violently together, a pitiful attempt to keep warm against the elements, when he heard a woman's voice ring out ahead of him. At least he thought he did. He paused for a moment, listening out, waiting for the voice within the void. Hello, he shouted, just loud enough to convince himself he tried. Then after a few seconds, when there had still been no reply, he started on his way once more. It could just be his imagination, Abraham thought, but he could have sworn it suddenly felt a great deal colder, bitter almost, as if the very air itself had frozen all around him. Then he heard the voice again. Help me! it screamed. It sounded like a woman lost on the moors. Please won't anybody help me, for I am but a poor, feeble damsel in distress, unable to assist myself. Immediately, Godchild leapt from his horse onto the muddy tracks below, stepping across the path in search of this damsel, a dashing gentleman to the rescue at last. I'm here, he shouted as helpfully as he could. Where are you? Down here, the woman yelled again, and he followed her voice all the way to the edge of a slope, leading gently down into the valleys below. She must have slipped, he thought. Easy enough to do on a night like this. He should probably tread carefully himself, come to think of it. He peered over the edge and could just about see her, clinging to the grass a short distance away from him. She was just a silhouette at that point, picked out against the landscape. Unnaturally thin, a woman tall and slender. Probably didn't have the upper body strength to haul herself back onto the path, poor thing. Still, she wasn't far away. He could probably reach her himself without too much trouble. He crouched against the ground. Listen to me, he said, holding one of his hands out towards her. I'm here to help. Now, I want you to grab my hand and hold on tight. Can you do that for me? I think so, she said, clutching onto his hand in a vice-like grip. Uh, a little less tightly, perhaps, Abraham suggested, as he dragged her back onto the path behind them, pulling her up with him as hard as he could. Then he lost his footing and slipped against the mud, yanking the pair of them down into a puddle in the path. Their clothes soaked, chests heaving, the cold wind whipping across their faces. She turned to him where they lay. Thank you, she said. I could surely have never overcome such a gentle incline without your assistance. The pleasure was all mine, Abraham grinned back at her. Good thing that I was passing through, though, eh? She smiled a wicked smile. Wasn't it just? Abraham smiled at her again, and it was only now he found he could make her out more clearly almost as if she was allowing him to see her in the darkness. Long blonde hair cascaded across her shoulders, and her skin seemed to shine translucent, almost dangerously pale. The woman he'd rescued, his damsel in distress, and she was beautiful. But there was more to her than that. She was striking, yes, but he found himself strangely captivated, enthralled by her, he never even realised he was staring. Not that she'd have cared. Her gaunt and hollow face shimmered and glowed like a seraph in the night. Her steel-blue eyes sparkling brightly into his across the gloom, like they could bore into his very soul somehow. 
and he could feel her now, forcing her way into his mind, working out what he was, what he could do for her, their minds in perfect harmony with one another. There were so many things he could have said to her in that moment, but he never had the chance. She wouldn't let him. Instead, she held a solitary finger to her thin pink lips, hushing him softly, and he obeyed without question. He watched as she rose from the ground to her full height, holding a hand down towards him, just as he had to her mere minutes before. Dance with me, she sighed, and there was no hesitation. Almost instantly, Abraham found himself beside his newfound damsel. His arms wrapped tight around her, oblivious to the thick pulsating mist now rolling in around them. Clouds started forming in the doctor's mind as the mist grew heavier and heavier, blotting out his vision. When he eventually managed to snap himself out of the trance, he found himself back in the tavern, alone with Charity. They gone then? he asked cheerily, catching her off guard. Don't worry, she said, sitting herself down beside the doctor. I'm sure if I called, one of them would be here within an instant. Now then, now they're gone, I want you to tell me everything. Suddenly the doctor looked alarmed. Everything? he asked. Are you sure? Because I know a lot of everything. Everywhere. Every when, every how. And I've got to warn you, that's a fair bit of everything. Might take a while to get through. Well, I say a while. I could probably cram it down into a millennia or two. Well, I say a millennia. Could make it just a couple of centuries for the abridged version. Or three and a half days for the entire history of Earth. The human race just isn't that interesting. Sorry. He shook his head apologetically, but Charity didn't react. The doctor could tell she was distracted. Every few seconds he'd catch her looking over her shoulder, back towards the door. What is it? he asked, dragging her back to reality. Why is everyone here so on edge? Charity hesitated, and the doctor could tell she didn't trust him. Not completely. Surely you can understand why everyone's suspicious of you, she said at last. Absolutely, the doctor agreed. I'm probably the most suspicious man you'll ever meet. But you can trust me, I promise. Now tell me, what's been happening here? What have you got to be suspicious about? Strangers, Charity answered simply. We were cut off about three weeks ago now. No one's been able to enter or leave the village, and we don't know why. We're running out of food, the harvest season's long gone, our supplies are running low, and something's getting to the livestock before we can. You mean they're going missing? Charity shook her head. Mr. Rudge and Mr. Haycott keep finding their cattle dead in the fields, torn apart, like an animal attack, only worse. The doctor's curiosity was piqued. And there's more, Charity continued. People have been going missing. Will-o'-the-wisps, strange lights in the sky, leading men up to the moors, luring them to their deaths. Sometimes we've even found bodies, attacked just like the cattle. Charity swallowed hard. Some of the women have been disappearing too, she added. But you don't think they're dead? We've never found their bodies. Only the men. That's why everyone keeps insisting I have to lock myself away. I mean, young women going missing. 
People are always going to assume the worst, aren't they? That's why they thought you were the demon. You're the only man they've ever found alive out there. Right, the doctor agreed. Makes sense, I suppose. Completely wrong, of course, but kind of logical in its own little way. He smiled his most reassuring smile. What were they doing up on the moors with a demon on the loose anyway? Hunting it. Oh. Ideas had already started forming in the doctor's mind as he locked the information into place, trying his best to narrow down the possibilities. There were far too many potential explanations. Not all of them alien, but it was a start, at least. And what about this darkness of yours? the doctor asked, catching her off guard again. Because when I first arrived here, I went to look up at the sky, and do you know what I saw? Charity shook her head. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not even the gaps between the clouds. No stars, no moon, just darkness. And I thought that can't be normal, surely. Nowhere in the universe has a sky like that. So what happened? You're the doctor, Charity replied. You tell me. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That's how it's always been, since God created man. We know that. Everyone knows that. Then one day, no one knows why, it simply failed to rise. And this village has been consumed by darkness ever since. But that's impossible, protested the doctor. The sun doesn't just go away and stop working. Not this one, anyway. He bounded across the room to an open window and looked outside. So where's it got to? Now you're asking me to explain all this, just like they do, Charity said. She walked across the room to join him at the window, stretching out an arm, pointing off into the distance, just beyond their vision. Some people say you can still see it if you look hard enough, she said. Just the faintest glow on the horizon. Blink and you'll miss it. Can you see? Nope, the doctor told her. No, she said glumly. Neither can I. Some people tried to follow, those that could see it. But the further they walked, the darker the night became until eventually they found themselves returned to the other side of the village, back where they began. Recursive occlusion, suggested the doctor under his breath. No, it couldn't be. Could it? No. Some say the sun is dead now, Charity sighed. That this is all part of the devil's grand design. And to think they call this the Age of Enlightenment. They only say that because they don't all believe the same thing anymore. And is that a bad thing? the doctor asked. Not if you still have something to believe in. The doctor smiled. And what do you believe? For a second, Charity hesitated. Then she looked back towards the sky, trying to spot the stars. It sounds silly, she said. Oh, go on, you can tell me. The doctor beamed. I promise I won't laugh. Still, a brief pause hung in the air between them. I used to think there were fairies at the bottom of my garden, she said eventually, still gazing out the window. I suppose I still do in some ways. It reassures me to think that there might be more to life than just the things we see. There could be a whole different world out there, hidden amongst our own. Some things that can never be explained. Then Charity fell silent, considering what the doctor had told her. What you said before, nowhere in the universe... What did you mean by that? Doctor shifted awkwardly beside her, and she turned to face him. 
tried to look him in the eye. You're not a demon, are you? she murmured, more an observation than a question. The doctor sighed heavily. Sometimes, Charity, I can't help but wonder. Unbeknownst to the doctor, however, Abraham Godchild was dancing with a true demon just outside the village. The pair of them, captured in the moonlight, heavy raindrops drizzling down their faces. It seemed to Abraham as though he'd spent hours in her company, worshipping this creature, relishing her touch, without once ever catching her name. They clung to one another as the elements lashed around them, thunder cracking, gales howling, his thin boyish fingers playing lightly across her bodice. Then he heard her as they circled one another, whispering strange words into his mind, words without meaning. He could feel her thoughts in his, and his in hers, both oblivious to the storm that brewed around them, their minds and bodies so close together now, almost one and the same. He felt oddly comfortable, suddenly at ease, He'd dance like this at court balls, often mingling with a hundred different women in an evening, the flurry of satin and lace, bodices rising and falling gently with the swelling of the music, figures spinning lightly on the balls of their feet, dancing magnificently with a multitude of partners. But there was only ever one woman capable of catching his eye across a crowded ballroom, the elusive Miss Emily Wainwright, daughter of Lord Alexander Wainwright, and the target of a great many men's affections besides. He could see her now, as though she was there, dancing that very dance with him on the moors. A bleak setting for a most beautiful act. But the creature could also see her, even encouraged him to think that she was Emily, as she whispered yet more alien words into his head, addling his senses, warping his reality so he might believe what she needed him to. But Abraham Godchild had always been the most steadfast gentleman. It was his reputation. He put manners and class above his own personal happiness. And yet, with Emily, he could happily throw caution to the wind just to spend another vital second in her company. Just to hand her another glass of wine, to bid her good night. Maybe even one day to tell her how he really felt about her. They danced their noble minuet together in that everlasting night. He'd been sent there on a mission to investigate its cause. And yet for all he cared in that moment, that night could last forever. The sun need never rise, a new day need never dawn, and it wouldn't, not for him, not now. He looked into the woman's face again, into those warm hazel eyes, no trace of sapphire now, and that gentle smile, the one only Emily knew how to throw. It was her, he could have sworn it, and yet the angel on the moors continued to toy with him, playing with his feelings. It encapsulated the very essence of Emily Wainwright, a cruel parody of the woman he knew, encouraging him to surrender, to let his guard down, just for a second. And when he did... Abraham thought of Emily as he felt the creature's fangs sink deep into his throat, screaming out her name with his dying breath. He didn't know why. Whether it was a plea that she might stop, an accusation, perhaps even a final declaration of his love. He felt his legs give way, head sat heavy on his shoulders, his entire body crumpling to the ground beneath his feet. 
a warm sensation suddenly flowing from his throat, spilling onto the earth beneath him. As he fell, he rolled over onto his back. He could see her standing over him through a watery haze, his eyes now drowning with tears. And he could see there was no pity or remorse, no chance that she might save him. But it comforted him to think she might be there. Then she spoke, just a few simple words, told him that she loved him. Her voice not quite the same as he remembered, but for the briefest moment, just before he died, Abraham Godchild could pretend that it was her, that his beloved Emily had come to hold his hand, to help him on that final lonely journey. And before he realized the truth, before the figment of Emily could abandon him completely, everything went black. A young lad went missing almost a month ago now. No one knows how or why. Harry Winter, his name was. Charity and the doctor were now sitting cross-legged on the tavern floor, facing one another. Both had a cup of water in their hands, liberated from behind the counter. He was the first of many, Charity told the doctor. But he was a good lad, Harry. Worked hard to look after his father. She paused, remembering how Mr. Winter had seemed in the weeks following Harry's initial disappearance. He's not been the same since, though I suppose that's to be expected. What was he working on at the time? asked the doctor. I'm not sure, Charity confessed. There was some kind of building work being carried out at one of the local barns. Harry had been sent out to gather supplies, the usual sort of thing. She leaned towards the doctor conspiratorially. Some say he disturbed an unmarked grave. The doctor leaned even closer towards Charity. What sort of grave? he whispered. Oh, nothing important, Charity answered casually, leaning back and taking a much-needed gulp of water from her cup. It was just a local landmark, Lucifer's tombstone, it's called, some sort of superstitious symbol tied up with village history. The doctor looked at her. I'm serious, she insisted. I've seen it as you enter the village. It was just a mound of rocks covered in moss. It's been there for years. No one knew why, so they said it was some kind of grave. I mean, people always invent stories like that to explain the inexplicable, don't they? Don't they just, the doctor muttered, leaping to his feet. He offered his hand to Charity and helped her up. Do you think it's important? she asked. That depends, he said. What can you tell me about it? Not much, she answered, and she watched the doctor's face visibly drop with disappointment. I'm afraid I don't know much about that sort of thing. Sorry. Then let's find someone who does. The doctor bounded across to the door on the other side of the room. You're not going to find anyone out there, Charity insisted as he wrapped the palm of his hand tightly round the handle. They're all terrified. You think? The doctor twisted the handle, a huge grin spreading across his face as he opened the door. A massive crowd of villagers had gathered just outside and had undoubtedly been stood there for a while, judging by how damp they all were. Many of them were soaked through. The doctor held a hand flat into the night. The storm was easing off. Safe to step outside and brave the elements. You've done this before, haven't you? Charity said. The doctor winked at her and offered her his arm. Oh, yes, he cheered. The best thing is, they've probably been listening at the door, hanging on our every word, which saves me an awful lot of time. I can't bear repeating myself. A throng of men eyed them both warily as they stepped outside, 
when a younger man suddenly burst through the crowd, running towards the doctor and his companion. He had scruffy black hair, blue eyes, and the kind of tall, broad silhouette that suggested he was some kind of labourer. Without warning, the doctor felt Charity rip her arm from his and watched as she ran to greet the stranger. Where they met, the pair fell into an instant affectionate embrace, the stranger clinging on to Charity with his life. As the pair pulled away from their impromptu clinch, they shared the briefest of kisses, before the newcomer took Charity gently to one side. "'I heard what happened,' the young man blurted out anxiously. "'They said you'd been seized by some sort of demon, that he'd trapped you in there with him.' <clears throat> The doctor coughed loudly, intruding on their private conversation. Yes, sorry, demon, he announced. That'd be me. And you are? At first, the newcomer refused to answer. Sorry, Charity replied on his behalf, dragging the young man back towards the doctor. Doctor, this is my husband, Nate. Nate, this is the doctor. Both men held their hands out grudgingly to one another, entering into a polite, yet decidedly reluctant handshake. It's Nathaniel, actually, Nate told the doctor through gritted teeth. Nice to meet you. And you, replied the doctor. Who knows, you might even be able to help, because this darkness of yours, I'm looking for someone to help me shed some light on it, so to speak. He turned to the crowd. Anyone? But there was no reply. Instead, the villagers mumbled nervously amongst themselves, refusing to answer. Oh, come on, the doctor bellowed. There must be something, some tiny little detail tucked away in one of your local legends. Anything? Well, um, it has been said that the darkness came here once before, a voice piped up. Before this village even existed. The crowd watched as an old white-haired man made his way slowly to the front of the congregation. Not one of the men from the altercation in the tavern. They say the land went seventy days without sunlight, he continued. Only the sisterhood could banish the darkness from this place. And when they did, they founded the abbey in memory of their triumph, of their victory over the demons in their everlasting night. Was there ever any mention of how they overcame the darkness? the doctor asked. Or where it came from, Charity added. No, the old man told them, shaking his head. We never once thought it could be true, not in our wildest dreams. And now we've lost both the sisters and their secret, along with any chance we might have had of ending this. There was a momentary pause as they waited for the doctor to respond, but he was already distracted. His head tilted to one side, down towards the ground. Can you hear that? he asked Charity. She shook her head and looked around intently as though that might somehow allow her to see what only he could hear. What am I listening for? she asked. But the doctor didn't answer. Instead, he simply held up his hand, silencing the crowd around him, and waited for the noise to grow steadily louder, drawing closer and closer towards them. Suddenly, one of the village watchmen ran into the square, lantern flailing in his hand, as he breathlessly tried to alert the villagers to what was coming. But they already knew. They could hear it for themselves, a gentle, steady thudding in the darkness. Charity watched as realisation dawned upon the crowd, as they murmured anxiously with one another, hearing the impossible approach, another stranger, the second that night. Then they recognised the noise as it drew nearer. It was the sound of hooves, a horse galloping through the heavy gloom towards them, following the light of the village like a beacon 
growing steadily closer and closer. Then they saw it, glimpses snatched in firelight, a fine black steed sweeping majestically from the shadows as it burst into the square, almost knocking one of the watchmen off his feet. At first glance, it didn't seem to have a passenger of any kind, but then, as it slowed, Charity noticed a shape strapped across the elaborate leather saddle, arms and legs bound together beneath its midsection, foppish hair falling across an unfamiliar face. The horse spluttered to a clumsy halt at Nate's feet, and almost immediately the doctor was at its side, releasing the dead man's body from its back, resting it gently on the ground. A mark of respect. Officials tried to prevent him rifling through the dead man's pockets, and Charity tried to stop them interfering. Let him, she insisted. But they didn't. Not at first. Listen to her, Nate warned them, as calmly as he could. And if you won't listen to a woman, then listen to me. This man here is a doctor, a man of learning. And if Charity thinks he should examine this man, well, I don't see that any of us have much choice but to let him. An affronted hush spread quickly amongst the crowd, and Charity knew Nate had probably overstepped at the mark. But then she didn't particularly care anymore. Too many inexplicable things had happened over the last few weeks. Perhaps their only solution lay with this equally inexplicable man. Charity shot her husband a tender little smile, then turned her attention back towards the doctor. By this point, he'd already managed to remove the dead man's jacket and was now in the process of enthusiastically turning each and every pocket inside out. A handful of gold and silver coins fell idly to the ground as the doctor threw the jacket to one side frisking the body for any further clues, anything that might provide a lead. What are you looking for? Charity asked, crouching down beside him. I don't know, the doctor admitted. Won't until I find it. Hold on. Here we go. What's this? He broke off. Then almost as though he'd called upon some magic words to help him, the doctor withdrew a letter from the young man's britches, holding it up for all to see. Even from a distance, it was clear the ornate wax seal that had once secured the letter was broken. Fragments of wax still clung stubbornly to the fringes of the parchment. On the reverse were two words. Abraham Godchild, the doctor announced to the villagers. Finally, their body had a name. He turned his back on them again as he ripped the letter open, studying its contents. He read of the mission and of the news that had reached the outside world of Thornton Rising and Charity guessed at once why a man like Godchild had been chosen. Never one to give up, Abraham had succeeded in his task. He'd found a way through the darkness, infiltrating the very heart of the village itself. But it had cost him his life. What killed him? Charity finally asked, breaking the awful silence that had now hung across the village. Looks like some kind of animal attack to me, Nate suggested. We used to see things like that all the time up on the moors. Usually just wolves attacking livestock. Not in this case, I'm afraid, the doctor told them, shaking his head. See those? He indicated a pair of tiny punctures on the dead man's throat, running his fingers lightly across the wounds. Far too delicate and precise for any animal. No, this is something altogether different. Something intelligent. The doctor's hand drifted down Godchild's body pointing to a speck of crimson creeping out from beneath the dead man's waistcoat. He tugged roughly at the buttons, opening it to reveal a strange dark pattern staining the shirt, soaking through the ruffs of crisp white linen. It was blood. The doctor quickly set about loosening the dead man's collar, ignoring the protestations of the crowd, 
and hauled the shirt up slowly from Godchild's chest, throwing it aside. The body fell limply to the ground beneath their feet. An expression of quiet panic spread across the doctor's face, and when Charity followed his gaze, she saw the simplest of messages. A series of dark red lines smeared across Abraham's chest, inked crudely in the dead man's blood. Six letters. Three words. I am now. A frown of confusion flickered across Charity's forehead. I am now, she repeated quietly to herself, as though the message was somehow incomplete. She shuffled across to where the doctor sat. I am now. What? she asked again. That doesn't make sense. Oh, I think it does, the doctor sighed. Whatever this force is, it means what it says. It's now. It exists. It's here all around us. He stood up sharply, spinning on his heels, surveying the village that surrounded them. His eyes widened almost instantly, the hairs on the back of his neck standing on end. Do any of you feel that? He asked abruptly, licking the tips of his fingers. That sort of tingle in the air. But no one answered. They were all too afraid now to admit to feeling anything, just in case it spurred the doctor on. Instead, one of the watchmen strode to face him, harbouring a question of his own. You speak of a force, the man said boldly, trying hard to swallow the fear in his voice. What do you mean by that? What manner of horror would do this to a man? I don't know, not yet. The doctor answered simply, running his hands backwards through his hair, his mind apparently racing at a million miles an hour. It's almost as if it's waiting for something, he suggested. But what? What makes you think it's waiting? Charity asked. This wasn't just a warning, the doctor told her grimly. Just look at that face. See how pale it is. Charity looked at the young man's skin. His face was as white as his eyes. It's like all the life's been drained from him. All the blood, confirmed the doctor gravely. And that's not the sort of thing you do just to scare a few people. Though obviously it's pretty effective at that as well. No, something like this is born out of necessity. A basic desire to survive, to feed. Charity suddenly felt a horrible sickness in her stomach. You mean something out there ate this man? She asked. No, not ate the doctor said, just, um, feasted. Again, the crowd grew anxious, throwing a hundred different questions at the doctor. He ignored almost all of them. There is not a beast on God's earth that could feast upon a man in such a manner, protested one of the watchmen. Exactly, replied the doctor, rallying the crowd. And that's what we're up against. Something not of this world. A creature from the stars, here to feed on the blood of you and your cattle. He turned to Charity. Do you believe me? Charity could feel the words forming on the tip of her tongue, but she had no time to answer. Suddenly the doctor felt a strange sensation overwhelm him, just as it had before, and he couldn't move. He was in the creature's mind again, reliving its memories, experiencing its emotions. Everything it felt back then he would feel now as if it was happening to him. Horrible feelings. It was dark and cold. He could taste earth in his mouth, 
feel it all around him as he fought to breathe, coughing up lungfuls of air, resisting the urge to choke. And there was panic too. A terrible sense of dread, of being trapped in one place alone for the rest of time. His mind now swelling inside the creatures, his head throbbing, aching with pain. Finally, a voice broke through, calm and reassuring. Doctor? Charity asked. Doctor, are you all right? She placed a hand gently on his shoulder, and the doctor's eyes flicked open, blinking suddenly, wide and alert. Blood pumped wildly through his heart as he struggled to connect all the different elements together in his head. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, it came to him. Of course, he snapped. It all makes sense. Charity looked at him, confused. What does? Everything, he replied. All those stories you told me about, about the darkness and the sisterhood and the demons. What if they were all true? Every single word. He was rambling like a madman now. Because it all fits, don't you see? All those creatures that feast on the blood of the living, they draw upon the minerals it contains. Minerals like iron, just like you humans do. What do you mean, just like us? Charity asked as he paused for breath. Well, the doctor continued, you can only ever have so much of a good thing. Minerals like iron are all well and good, but too much and you risk an overdose. At best, it might just weaken your central nervous system, muck about with your heart and brain a bit. And at worst, it kills you, Charity suggested. The doctor nodded grimly. But this place, he exclaimed, gesturing loudly into the darkness that surrounded them. Good old Yorkshire, this place is full of iron. Well, for now, until you mine it all at least. You bury a creature like that here, you might just overwhelm it. Hold it at bay for a bit, at least until some unsuspecting passerby unleashes it again a few centuries later. Yes, that's it. The doctor smiled, cheering his own theories with a childlike sense of pride. But only Charity seemed to understand him, and even her mind took a second or two to catch up. So this creature, she started, that's what the sisterhood buried here before, isn't it? They banished it back into the landscape, trapping it there. Am I right? Precisely, the doctor agreed. And now it's woken up. Or rather, she has been woken up. Probably by that winter lad of yours. Sorry. And I'm betting she's not the happiest of bunnies either. So let's think about this. She's just woke up, so she'll be out for revenge. Dominion over the living. That kind of thing. But we can stop her. I promise. Hold on, Nate interrupted. What do you mean, she? Oh, didn't I mention? The doctor grinned. I think I bumped into your demon up on the moors when I arrived. Can't have been her type, <laughs> I don't think. Hence my still being here. Doctor, you're not making sense, Charity protested. Are you saying you've already met this creature? Kind of, the doctor said. I think. I just get flashes every so often, like some kind of presence tucked away at the back of my mind, which would explain the amnesia. I hope. Still don't get this darkness, though. I'll have to work on that. Anyway, that's enough of the hypotheticals. He turned to Charity. You ready, then? Ready for what? she asked. The doctor took her hand and grinned his most childlike grin. Me! It took them both a good ten minutes to reach the village abbey, but it was dark, and Charity wasn't entirely convinced the doctor knew where they were going, or why. For a short time, she even thought that they might be destined to spend the rest of their lives together, running up and down little country lanes in the middle of the night. But it wasn't to be. They'd reached their destination in the end. Charity shivered as they stepped into the abbey grounds. She'd never really ventured this far outside the village before. Not after dark, anyway. 
Suddenly every strange noise unsettled her. Twigs snapping under their feet, owls hooting in the treetops, and a number of other noises she couldn't even begin to explain. How could her own home seem so unfamiliar all of a sudden? So alien? Even the reassuring presence of the Abbey now cast a forbidding shadow through the gloom. Here we are, then, she announced, trudging through the grounds. But the doctor had already bounded a few steps ahead of her. Seemingly dismissing the pair of large oak doors at the front of the building, searching instead for an alternative point of entry. As they circled the grounds, Charity noticed a series of massive shuttered windows set deep into each wall, their glass shimmering with a strange, unnatural light. Then when they reached the rear of the building, the doctor fell strangely silent, and Charity knew at once what he was thinking. She'd thought it herself many times before. The whole structure of the abbey was somehow strange, unusual, like it was out of kilter with the rest of the village. The two towers on the eastern and western corners were of decidedly different heights from one another, and the windows too varied in shape and size across the building's outer walls. Not necessarily unpleasant, just odd. It's always looked that way, she told him. No one knows why. It just has. It's famous for it. The doctor took a step back, casting his eyes over a wider section of the building. But it can't have been designed that way, surely, he insisted. It's not symmetrical. If I was in charge of designing a building like that, I'd have to make it symmetrical. Wouldn't you? But no, that... He gestured to the abbey, sweeping his hand across the length of the wall ahead of him. That looks like it's been built on top of another building to me. He paused, as though considering the notion for a moment. Then he started storming round the grounds again. I wonder what was here first. No one knows, Charity said, trying her best to keep up with him. The sisterhood founded this place just before they left. Only a few friars remain here now. She paused. Maybe they know something about it. They could help us. I don't think so, answered the doctor, slowing his pace as they approached a door to the side of the building. If that demon of yours has a history with them, chances are they're all connected somehow. Trust me, someone's probably holding a black mass in that creature's honour even as we speak. Well, I say probably, I mean maybe, possibly, perhaps. Charity heard a gentle whine coming from what seemed to be the doctor's hand then a loud, clumsy clunk as the door unbolted itself on the other side. "'Have you finished?' she asked impatiently. "'Not quite,' replied the doctor, opening the door. "'After you.' Charity could hear their own footsteps echoing ahead of them as they stepped into the chamber. Even in the darkness, she somehow found herself overwhelmed by their surroundings. She could just about make out a series of tall pillars lining the aisles, a semicircular apse projecting awkwardly from the south end of the building. Then above them a series of vast wooden beams arched across the roof like ribs. She shivered. Somehow this building was able to inspire a strange sense of dread in her, the like of which she'd never felt before. Instinctively she decided to keep moving, joining the doctor next to one of the staircases at the far end of the chamber. Won't be a jiffy! he told her as he pulled the sonic screwdriver from his pocket, aiming it up the staircase ahead of them. Charity watched as the thin metal tube extended from its base, the tip glowing blue with a gentle whine lighting their way. Reluctantly, she'd grabbed hold of his hand to let him lead her up the staircase, one step at a time. It was either that or wait for him downstairs. In the darkness. Alone. Somehow the staircase had seemed safer. 
As they made their way slowly up the tower, Charity thought she could hear the walls humming quietly around them, as though the entire building was somehow trying to communicate with them, to tell them what had happened when the darkness struck. But she knew it wasn't. She knew it was somehow the doctor's doing. What is that thing? she asked, pointing at the sonic screwdriver in his hand. Some kind of lantern? The doctor turned to her and nodded. If you like. A lantern you keep in your pockets? Charity mused. A lantern that makes the stonework of this building scream somehow? The doctor sighed. Yep, afraid so. Oh. The funny thing is, that's not the stonework you're hearing, the doctor told her. Well, I mean, you will be on some level, faint vibrations and all that, but nothing you should be able to make out. Not clearly. Not unless you have very good hearing. Which I don't know, maybe you have. But no, that... He patted his hand across the wall beside them. That is the sound of something else entirely. Some kind of xenotech. Alien technology threaded throughout the building. But what for? And why here of all places? Charity shrugged, and the doctor tapped his knuckles against the stonework, as though trying to will some kind of answer out of them. Perhaps it's... But the doctor's voice was suddenly, unceremoniously cut off by a cacophony of noise echoing throughout the tower, bells tolling loudly from the chamber above their heads. Brilliant, the doctor muttered under his breath. That's all we need, he shouted back to Charity. It'll be choir practice next, always the way. But Charity didn't answer. Instead, it seemed as though she'd been frozen to the spot, too afraid to move. The doctor crouched down beside her, a few steps ahead, and looked into her eyes. What is it? he asked. What's wrong? It's those bells, Charity started, trying hard to hide the fear in her voice. They stopped ringing when the darkness came, when we lost all track of time. So? the doctor asked. So why are they ringing now? And more to the point, who's ringing them? The doctor looked up towards the source of the noise above them. Only one way to find out, he smiled, and he hauled her up the staircase after him. The noise grew steadily stronger as they approached the bell chamber, until eventually neither the doctor nor Charity could hear one another speak. Then just as they reached the top of the tower, the noise stopped. Dead. Just the faintest tinny buzzing now ringing in their ears. For a moment, Charity wondered if all the noise could have deafened her senses, if that had been the last thing she'd been destined ever to hear. Then she heard the whine of the doctor's lantern next to her, and she knew that the bells had stopped. For the time being, at least. She could hear herself breathing again, ragged and afraid, putting on a brave face for the doctor's benefit. She could hear the blood pumping through her ears, her heart racing, and watched in awe as his pocket lantern seemed to unlock the door ahead of them. The doctor winked at her then pressed a finger to his lips, silencing her before she even had the slightest chance to ask how he'd managed to do whatever it was he'd done. Then he wrapped his fingers lightly round the handle, twisting it until the door groaned slowly inwards, and they stepped inside. Moonlight burst through the windows now, swamping the chamber in a series of deep, dark shadows. Charity resisted the urge to gag as she followed the doctor inside, rotting floorboards creaking beneath her feet. A vile stench hung in the air, new to her senses, but one the doctor would have recognised in a heartbeat. It was death, the unmistakable decay of human flesh. Can you see anything? Charity hissed across the room, trying desperately to avoid any additional intakes of breath. The doctor nodded grimly. Yes, 
he answered quietly. I see them. Charity crossed the room towards him, a handkerchief now held tightly to her face as she followed the doctor's gaze. There, slumped against the massive bells, were the bodies of two dead monks, one young, one old. The hoods of their cowls pulled back to reveal their faces, both of them contorted in horror. They'd been dead at least a week, the doctor guessed. As they approached, Charity could see the men had been fastened to the ropes through a series of complex straps and pulleys. Somebody's idea of a joke, the doctor told her as he went to examine the bodies. Not that it was the least bit funny. But what's it all for? And what was all that ringing in aid of? Charity asked again. Was it them? I mean, it couldn't have been them. Could it? Then, as if to answer, one of the monks suddenly shifted and moaned, a low guttural groan escaping from his lips. It was for us a warning, the monk spluttered, his lips unused to speaking. But for them, a call to war. The doctor and Charity watched, in morbid fascination, as the two monks now began to ring their bells one final time, gesturing feebly out towards an open window. Behold, they declared in unison, their bodies slumping back against the massive bells ahead of them. She comes. What is it? the doctor asked. What's coming? What does she want with you? Tell me! But the monks didn't answer. He could see it in their milky, lifeless eyes. They had no explanation to give. They were just puppets. Simple ciphers designed to keep the doctor at bay until... Doctor! Charity's voice cut across the room like a razor. I think you should see this, now! He darted across to where she was standing at the window. What is it? He asked above the din. There! She said, pointing out the window into the night pointing to where a thick, pulsating mist was now rolling across the Yorkshire moorland towards them. A figure silhouetted in the distance, its eyes shining an ancient, evil blue. The demon of Thornton Rising had risen from its tomb. and Charity fled swiftly down the tower, two steps at a time, abandoning the lifeless bodies of the monks behind them. 
The doctor now had a thousand different ideas flooding through his head and was trying desperately to make them fit together. They had to be connected. The deaths, the darkness, the woman he'd met on the moors. But how? He burst through the doors to the abbey, back into the garden, sonicking them shut behind him. Those men, Charity gulped breathlessly. What happened to them? They were drained of blood, kept alive as playthings, the doctor explained. Some kind of macabre little game, I'd imagine. An act of revenge? That's the sort of thing this creature does, what she lives for. And she's out there right now. He paused, his eyes widening dramatically. You scared yet? A bit, Charity admitted. Brilliant, the doctor grinned. Always a good idea to be scared. Keeps you alert. Nothing worse than being all brash and fearless. Now then, you got a plan? Um, how about we find this thing and kill it? The doctor mulled this over disapprovingly. No offence. But have you got any other plans? Charity shook her head. Not at the moment, no. Sorry. Oh, nor me. Never mind. I'm sure I can improvise on the way. He took her hand in his, dragging her off behind him. And off we go! As they ran back into Thornton Rising, the doctor was surprised to see the village square empty. No trace of the mob that had crowded there just an hour or so before. He looked around, his eyes searching for someone, anyone that could help. But there was no one. Only a couple of the watchmen, still patrolling the borders, their lanterns held aloft, and Godchild's horse trotting casually around the square, neglected and looking for company. Immediately the doctor ran towards it, ruffling his hands through its mane, stroking its muzzle affectionately. Are you all alone? he asked, adopting an unusually saccharine talk to the animal's voice. Have the nasty men left you to fend for yourself? There, there. We're here now. We'll look after you, won't we, Charity? He noticed she was still standing a good few feet away from them, keeping her distance. Come on, he urged, waving her over. Come and say hello to Henry. Henry? Charity stretched out a hand, nervously patting the top of the horse's head before withdrawing it. Why, Henry? Good name for a horse, Henry he replied. Charity sighed. If you say so. Anyway, this is the plan, the doctor said, turning back to Henry. And I'm sorry. I really am very sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to be big and brave and strong. Can you do that for me? He looked into the horse's eyes, offering reassurance. And for the briefest moment, it looked almost as though the horse nodded its agreement. Brilliant. One down, three to go. Three what? Charity asked. Horses, he told her as if it was obvious, though he could tell from the expression on her face that she wasn't convinced. I'll explain all the way, he promised. Now then, can you ride? Charity hesitated. Um, well, this is the thing, she started. Horses terrify me. I got thrown from one when I was a girl. Never ridden since. Sorry. No, that's fine, the doctor reassured her. Probably best you stay here anyway. Keep you safe, out of danger. He ran his hand back through his hair. Now then, where do I get more horses from? I'm sorry, Charity asked, confused. Horses, the doctor repeated. Where can I get some? Well, Nate's a blacksmith. He works in the stables down by Stowe Field. You could always ask him. Perfect, the doctor grinned. Now then, here's what we do. And by we, I mean you and I. Individually, not together. Got that? I think so, Charity said. Good. In that case, most important thing first, namely you. I want you to go home and lock yourself in until this is all over. Understand? Make sure you're safe, secure, and don't answer your door to anyone. Not even me.
He hesitated momentarily. Actually, no. If it's me, answer it. Especially if you hear me banging. And I don't just mean ordinary banging, I mean loud enough to wake the neighbours banging. Does that make sense? So if you hear me banging on your door, possibly in hysterics, screaming out loud, I'd say almost certainly answer it. But only if it's me. Probably. And what are you going to do? Charity asked. Oh, the doctor beamed. I'm going to bring the daylight back to Thornton Rising. Just you watch me. And that's just what Charity did. She watched as the doctor rode off towards the stables, leaving her behind to lock herself away. And for a second, she even considered actually doing what he'd asked. Then she started thinking about what the doctor had said to her before. Sometimes it was sensible to be scared. It stopped us from making mistakes, rushing in where angels fear to tread. But if that fear also stopped us from doing what we want, from leading our lives to their full potential, wouldn't that be a far bigger mistake to make? She looked back to where the doctor had been standing just minutes before, then out towards the field. She spent her entire life hoping for something more to this world. And now that she'd found it, now she'd met the doctor, she'd decided to give him up. And so easily. But why? Why had she done that? Because of some childhood fear she'd once had holding her back? Perhaps. But she was an adult now. She could make her own decisions. Fear itself was nothing to be afraid of. Time to put away those childish things, she thought. Without even realising, she found herself already running through the village, following the doctor's trail, trying to catch up with him, her legs struggling to sprint beneath her skirts. Perhaps she might be able to help him after all. She ran for what seemed like hours, but it could only have been minutes, her feet skidding unsteadily on the slick gravel paths. But when she finally reached Stowe Field, the thick, wet mud splattering up her skirt, she could see it was already too late. Doctor! She called, the desperation in her voice echoing round the fields. Doctor, where are you? But he was already gone. Oh yeah, that doctor of yours was here, Nate told Charity as she burst into the stables. He just came rushing in, much like you, asking for horses and Lord knows what else. Not so much as a hello. Said he was off to fight this demon thing or something. And did he say where he was going? Charity asked. Not a clue, Nate said, shaking his head. He went off with Owen, Patrick and Wesley, though, I think. I offered to help, but he told me to head home. Said I should wait for you, is that right? But Charity wasn't listening to a single word he was saying. You all right? he asked. I'm fine, she smiled. Really, I'm fine. This was her chance. She didn't need a horse to help the doctor. She could still be with him at his side when he needed her. See you later, she promised, kissing Nate lightly on the cheek. Then she darted out of the stables, running towards the misty glow on the horizon. Love you, she shouted over her shoulder, turning her back on him, and Nate sighed as she vanished into the night. Love you too, he muttered. Owen Grantham, Patrick Higgins, and Wesley Millet had been following the doctor through the darkness for what seemed like forever. They'd followed him across the plains and meadows of the dales, pursuing their elusive will-o'-the-wisp, never once daring to speak a single word to one another their horses whinnying in protest through the thick autumnal mud. Then, as they reached the outer edges of the woods, the doctor had signalled them to slow as they approached, which they did, following his lead. Although none of the men would admit it, each of them felt strangely uneasy in his company. 
Somehow the doctor's entire manner unnerved them, though not one of them knew why. Perhaps it was his misguided confidence, the fact he hadn't shown a hint of fear since arriving in their village, a village where everyone was terrified and had good reason to be. Even now he was moving effortlessly through the woods like some kind of hunter, his ears pricked as though listening out for everything and anything around them. Then he'd forge ahead at speed without any warning, not a care in the world, almost threatening to lose his followers completely. At one point they were even considering heading back to the village without him, when suddenly they heard Henry splutter to a halt ahead of them, the doctor pulling tightly on his reins. As they grew closer, they found the doctor staring at a figure in the distance, a thin silhouette shrouded in the mist. They could barely make it out at first. Then, as they padded slowly closer through the undergrowth, they realised it was a person, standing there, alone in the woods. A woman. She had her back towards them, so they had no idea who she might be, though the doctor clearly had his own suspicions, and his horse too seemed to recognise her scent. One of the men was about to call out, to ask if she was all right, if she needed any help, when the doctor abruptly held a finger to his lips, ordering him not to. The men looked on silently as the doctor's horse padded closer to the creature, trying to coax some kind of reaction out of it. But still, she didn't move. Had they got it wrong, they wondered? Were their eyes playing tricks on them in the gloom? Suddenly the woman spun round to face them, swivelling on her heels, her cold blue eyes shining brightly into theirs. She wasn't one of the women from the village, they knew that much. In fact, none of them had ever seen her before. But the doctor had. He recognised her almost immediately as she did him. They'd met each other briefly on the moors once before. Good evening, doctor, she purred. How nice to meet you again. And I see this time we have company. But the doctor didn't respond. Ignore her, he ordered as the men approached. Just close your eyes and try not to listen to her. That's right, the woman teased. Instruct your fodder to ignore me, Doctor. Like lambs to the slaughter. Tell them to drop their guard. What does she mean by that? Patrick asked nervously. Why exactly did you bring us up here? This is why I told you to ignore her, the Doctor scowled. Now please just listen to me and do what we agreed. Reluctantly, the men gave way to the doctor's demands, shifting slightly in their saddles. The woman watched as their horses trotted away from the doctor's, then started closing in around her, covering every side. Within seconds, she was trapped within a circle of horses. The doctor noticed her body stiffen visibly as they approached, struggling to retain its composure in front of them. It somehow guessed that she liked to appear cool, calm and collected. I suppose you think that's clever, she hissed as they surrounded her. What does she mean? interrupted Owen. What's clever? The doctor sighed. That's still not really ignoring her now, is it? And that's not really answering my question. The woman smirked as she watched the doctor try to combat his frustration. It's the horseshoes, he explained as quickly as he could. They're made of iron, and we just happen to be dealing with a creature that's extremely sensitive to it. Small doses. Lovely. She'll go right ahead and lap it up. But too much of a good thing and, well, who knows what might happen. He glared at the woman, but she simply smiled back at him. Who indeed, she grinned. 
Just remember what I said to you before, the doctor continued. The most important thing is to stay exactly where you are right now. Whatever she does, whatever she might say, she can't reach you so long as you stay on your horse. Horseshoes holding her back, you see? Clever, didn't you think? Exceedingly, the woman agreed through gritted teeth. How do you know so much about all this then? asked Wesley. And what exactly is she anyway? A being of purest darkness, the doctor explained. Probably brought some of it with her, come to think of it. Seen a few of her kind before. Well, maybe not her kind exactly. Not quite sure where this one originates from, to be honest. The woman coughed loudly from the confines of her circle. I am the Barvan She, she told them. The doctor racked his brains. Barvan She? He repeated to himself. Barvan She, Barvan She. Nope, never heard of you. The woman's expression faltered slightly. Nor would you have, she said. My race has long since perished. Destroyed in a war to end all wars. Played out across the galaxies. She cast an accusing look towards the doctor. Yet you survived, he observed, shrugging off her gaze. I fled, she corrected him. The last of my kind. Banished to this pathetic little world for the rest of our days. We had no choice. The doctor felt his thoughts slipping away from him again, and suddenly found himself back inside her mind, reliving those events for the very first time, trapped inside her memories. He looked around. He was on the flight deck of some kind of shuttlecraft, crude, compact and cramped. Bodies were shifting, shouting, struggling to work with one another at the controls. And some of them were screaming, first of all at one another, then for their lives. The shuttle had been hit. The entire ship lurched violently to one side, flinging the Barvan women hard across the flight deck. Lights now flashing, sirens wailing, fighting to be heard over the cries of its crew. All hell broke loose. The doctor watched as a series of sparks exploded across the controls, as flames licked up beneath the panels spreading across the room. He could feel the heat of a hundred fires against his face as the earth hurtled towards them on a viewscreen. Closer and closer, faster and faster. It all happened so quickly. Get out of my mind! The doctor barked as he finally managed to force her memories away from him. And with an effort, he found himself back in the woods with the men, the Barvonshi smirking cruelly up at him. That was our planet fall, she said, an unexpected vulnerability seeping through her voice. That's what we endured before we even arrived on this world. Before it all went wrong. And then what? The doctor demanded. The Barvon She threw him a vicious glare, as though he'd intended to interrupt her grief. Then our ship was devastated, she spat. Half its crew destroyed. Of the remaining casualties, only a handful of us survived. We attempted a repair, of course. But, the doctor prompted, but this would all have happened several centuries ago, by your reckoning, doctor at a time when the technology of this world was even more limited and primitive than it is now. There was no escape for us. Wesley was confused again. Hold on. What does she mean centuries ago? How old is she? The Barvon She held up one of her slender white hands, silencing him. Come now, she teased. That's hardly a suitable question for a lady. 
Then how about this for a question? Offered the doctor. What happened next? Because I'm pretty sure you didn't just sit around the dales all day taking in the view. Mind you, I could be wrong. It is a lovely view, after all. The doctor watched as a thin smile flickered across her face, the fangs creeping from the corners of her mouth as she grinned. We did what we needed to survive, she answered simply. What every race needs. We fed, doctor. She seemed almost to relish his sudden expression of disgust, and the doctor knew at once she was telling the truth. He'd already seen them, countless terrified faces flooding through his mind. All of them men. Harry Winter and Abraham Godchild amongst them. But he'd seen other things too. That's all very well, the doctor told her. But something managed to overwhelm you, didn't it? Something went wrong. And I know it did. Because when you tried to get inside my mind, I managed to get inside yours. And I think I've worked it all out. Just as I intended, she sneered. As they say on this pathetic little world. Keep your friends close. And your enemies closer. Oh, don't give me that, the doctor protested. You had no idea who I was when you met me. You weren't to know I could get inside your head. Not a nice place, by the way. Could do with a spot of tidying up. The Barvon she scowled angrily at him. It was the sisterhood, wasn't it? He continued. They realised what you were, what you were doing, and managed to find a way of defeating you. Am I right? The Barvon she clapped her hands together mockingly. Those miserable wenches never understood what we were, she growled. They vanquished us through chance and chance alone. They tracked us down across the moors and hunted us, as we would hunt their menfolk. Then they slaughtered my sisters in the name of their religion and left me all alone. The last of my kind, a fugitive. But they spared your life, the doctor pointed out. That's something, surely. They did no such thing. She spat angrily. They buried me where I lay when I was sleeping, trapped me beneath the ground for centuries, all the time alive. She paused as she calmed the anger in her voice, gritting her teeth. That was the biggest mistake they ever made. They should have killed me then, and they had the chance. The doctor sighed heavily. In some ways, he could even sympathise with her. He'd experienced it all before. The rage at having lost so much so quickly. He watched his own race die in battle. He'd even been the one to make it happen. And now he was alone again. One man against the universe. Even his friends all had to leave him in the end. I know how you feel, he told her quietly. You probably already know that. But I can help you if you let me. We can find you a new home anywhere in the universe. Away from Earth. What do you reckon? Or we could just kill her now, Patrick suggested. No, said the doctor firmly. That's not how we do things. Not while I'm around. But there's only one of her, Patrick argued. And this is my chance to live again, the Barvon she roared. I was spared for a reason, to ensure my race survived. And now with your assistance, of course, Doctor, I might just achieve that.
she smiled uneasily at him. You'll come with me then, he asked. Back to the TARDIS? But her laugh said it all. Come with you? She cackled through the darkness. Why would I do that? This world destroyed my sisters, my whole life. But now, now I have a chance to rebuild the Barvon Empire. A universe of darkness and death with me as its commander. She turned to the other three. You simpletons will be the first to die, she told them calmly. Sorry. Now, just hold on a moment, the doctor yelled. You're talking as if this is all some kind of done deal. It isn't. How do you expect to repopulate your race if you insist on killing every man you come across, hmm? Do you seriously expect to take on an entire world single-handed? But the barve on she didn't reply. Instead, the four men heard a twig snap behind them, and the doctor had the most awful feeling that this would be the answer to his question. He turned, looking around the woods from his saddle, as the other three men finally opened their eyes. But they couldn't see anything, not yet. Just the same thick white mist rolling through the trees, closing in around them. Footsteps advancing through the undergrowth towards them. Then, silhouettes started forming in the gloom. The doctor saw them first, their bodies outlined by their auras in the haze, just like the Barvon she before them. There could only have been a handful of them, he thought. Well, maybe two handfuls. Definitely no more than twelve of them at a push. You asked how I planned to take this planet single-handed, Doctor, the Barvon she jeered between the horses. The answer is, I don't. The Doctor studied the advancing women. They'd been human once, certainly. Some of them still dressed in the clothes they'd died in, stained with blood. Some young, some old, withered corpses struggling to fill tight corsets. But now they'd been transformed. All humanity had been stolen away from them, their identities lost, their bodies brutally twisted from their natural shape. Parasitic DNA, the doctor guessed, corrupting their biology. Am I right? But again, the Barvon she didn't offer any answers. Instead, she simply waited for the creatures to surround them, just as the doctor and his men had surrounded her before. Then the women stopped, a safe distance from the horses, holding out their hands in supplication, their talon-like nails beckoning the men to join them. Dance with us, they chorused, foul saliva dripping down their fangs, drooling down their faces as the men stared, shifting where they sat. They are beautiful, Wesley murmured. Oh no, the doctor urged them. Remember what I said. Stay on your horses. Close your eyes and don't move. But it was too late. The Barvon creatures had already lured the men down from the safety of their saddles and were now advancing upon them, their clear blue eyes shining violently through the darkness. The doctor looked round helplessly as the women started picking the men apart, the creatures' sharp white fangs descending upon their victims in some twisted hedonistic frenzy. Even the horses started backing away in revulsion, inadvertently releasing the Barvon she from the confines of her horseshoe prison. Then there was a crack, and one of the women howled victoriously into the cold night air, letting the youngest man's body fall to the earth at her feet. Dead. The doctor turned away in protest, glaring down at the Barvon she ahead of him, when suddenly he noticed another woman shrouded in the fog, standing quite apart from the rest of the group. She was watching them studying the others intently, almost enviously. He could just about see her eyes, shining coolly through the misty haze between them. 
could never have seen her own kind feast before, the Doctor realized. She must be new. Then as the creature advanced towards the pack, the Doctor thought he recognized her. Her chestnut hair, her muted clothes, skin somewhat paler than it ought to have been. It couldn't be. Could it? A gentle breeze cleared the mist between them and there wasn't any doubt. It was Charity. Her chocolate-brown gown now soaked with blood, her eyes shining brightly from their sockets, burning into his very soul. The doctor felt a lump form tightly in his throat, choking him as he spoke. I told you to stay, and I told you I could never leave, she countered accusingly, a harsh edge cutting through her voice. I wanted to help you to help everyone. We were going to rid the land of this eternal darkness together, but now, now I've found something better than you. She turned to face the Barvon Shi and smiled. I never realized you could feel this way. Suddenly, I'm so much more alive. But this isn't life, the doctor insisted. Only death. That's all these creatures are about. Can't you see? Charity looked around her at the creatures that had changed her. No, she uttered blankly in reply. But I'll tell you what I can see, doctor. I can see colors I never knew existed. Emotions I've never felt. All manner of thoughts and concepts and songs. The whole of existence brought to life in front of me. Things I don't even have words for. Civilization spread across the depths of space. A thousand different worlds and a hundred different galaxies. Everywhere the Barvon Shi has vanquished. The doctor watched as her eyes burned steadily brighter the pupils boiling cyan, alive with a vile combination of derision and scorn. And I can see this world, Charity continued, relishing her newfound perspective on life. This earth, hanging in space, at the center of a million different planets. But not yours. Is that right, Doctor? What happened to your world? The Doctor flinched, taking in a single deep breath to steel himself against her onslaught of taunts. She's got inside your head, he told her calmly. And I am but an extension of her, Charity replied. She lives through me as I do them. We are one and the same. Then she broke off abruptly, offering up a cold, pale hand towards him. Dance with me, Doctor, she pleaded. Make me feel better. Enough, the Barvon she barked wearily, cutting them off. I have my own score to settle with this man. And all because I didn't want to dance, the doctor scoffed. You must be great to have round parties. I said enough, the creature cried again, bringing her long, claw-like hands up to the sides of her skull, massaging her temples with her fingertips. She closed her eyes and let rip a sigh of satisfaction. Suddenly, the doctor felt another chill pulse through his head, and instinctively he knew she was trying to get inside again. But he could resist her. Now he knew what she was doing. If he concentrated hard enough. Then he heard her laughing, a short, horrible chuckle rippling through the darkness as an ugly grimace spread across her lips. I recognise your mind, Time Lord, she said as her cold blue eyes flicked open, fixing them directly onto his. I've seen your kind before. Your stubbornness, your corruption, your misguided sense of superiority. And we did feast on them. But that's impossible, the doctor growled. 
At the back of his mind, he knew she was trying to lure him down, just like she had the others. And yet, the more she spoke, the harder he found it to restrain himself. We drank from your race once before, the Barvon she continued, licking her lips together playfully as she spoke. So very long ago now. Back when that so-called society of yours was still in its infancy. When they willingly gave up their lives, watching as entire systems perished around your pathetic little world. And oh, how we did feast. The doctor felt the rage bubbling up inside him. But they defeated you, he spat. And now I seek to repay that debt. But I would never kill you, Doctor. The Barvon she purred in as reassuring a manner as she could muster. Not when I know your blood will taste so very succulent. On the contrary, I will do my utmost to ensure your survival to the end of time. Believe me. She smacked her lips together again, almost theatrically, throwing a subtle little nod to some of the other Barvon creatures behind him. The doctor watched curiously as they edged through the undergrowth towards him, slowly at first, then with an unexpected confidence. Did you really expect me not to notice that? he asked, clinging all the more tightly to the safety of Henry's saddle. The fact is, none of you can lay a finger on me while I'm up here, and you know it. He laughed with satisfaction, then noticed the women still advancing all around him, the Barvon She's eyes glinting mercilessly through the gloom. Is that a fact? she asked. Are you truly inaccessible to us, Time Lord? Um, yes, the doctor stumbled. At least, I think so. Aren't I? And yet, that horse does not belong to you, the Barvon She continued. It is the property of one Mr. Abraham Godchild, is it not? A man of not inconsiderable means. Well, I don't think he was poor, if that's what you're saying, the doctor agreed. The Barvon's eyes grew brighter as they advanced. Some might even have said he was an extravagant man, their leader persisted, her eyes flicking down to the ground at the doctor's feet. Indulgent. Overstated. Decadent. Sorry, the doctor interrupted, but I'm really not sure where you're going with this. Then he noticed Charity suddenly standing alongside him, her cold, clammy hand tapping him lightly on the shoulder. Silver horseshoes, she said, pointing at the hooves beneath his feet. Not iron. Oh, the doctor sighed, and even Henry seemed to shrug some kind of apology. Then he turned his attention back to the Barvon she. A wicked smile splitting across her face. You were right, the doctor told her. Extravagant. And yet, more than a little convenient for us, don't you think? The doctor hesitated. Well, a little more convenient, perhaps, he admitted. But you seem to have forgotten one tiny little detail. And what's that? asked the Barvon she. This is me you're dealing with. The doctor pulled tightly on the reins in his hands, prompting Henry to rear up violently beneath him, knocking a couple of the nearby Barvon creatures off their feet in the process. The Barvon covered their ears as the doctor whistled loudly, a high-pitched shriek that only animals could hear, and within seconds he found the remaining three horses at his side, unwittingly keeping the Barvon threat at bay. He didn't miss a beat. 
The moment there was another horse at his side, the doctor leapt clumsily onto its saddle, steadying himself across its back as he landed. He was safe, for now at least. You can't escape the darkness, doctor, the Barvonshi screamed. I've been skulking in the shadows for weeks, biding my time. But I tell you now, this ends tonight. Oh, I couldn't agree more, the doctor smiled back at her. Then he tugged sharply on the reins of his brand new horse, whispering a few words of encouragement into its ear, and quickly found himself galloping back through the dense dark woods to Thornton Rising. The Barvon She looked round her pathetic troop of converts, most of whom were still cowering in the undergrowth, terrified of the three remaining horses. She cocked her head furiously to the heavens and howled. Already the doctor and his steed were nowhere to be seen. The darkness had swallowed them up almost immediately, the thick barvon mist obscuring them from vision. As the doctor and his horse galloped swiftly back to Thornton, a mob had once again settled in the village square, the incensed howls of the barvon she having alerted them to the oncoming threat. The doctor leapt down from his horse just outside the tavern, and the villagers flocked around him almost immediately, demanding answers. Where were the others? What had they found? What had made those noises in the night? The doctor tried to calm them down, but failed. Still, the questions came. Were they safe? Was something coming for them? Would they ever see the sunrise again? In the end, the doctor couldn't help himself. Quiet! he shouted, trying to overwhelm them. His voice cut through the village like a knife, and instantly the villagers fell silent. Thank you, he added, adjusting his tie roughly around his neck. Now then, to answer just a few of your questions, first of all, no, it's just me. The others didn't listen to me, which is why you need to now. Secondly, yes, there is something coming. And yes, it made those noises. But we can stop it. Thirdly, or rather fourthly, I think I just answered two questions at once there. Yes, you'll all be safe. But only if you listen to me and do exactly as you're told. Got that? A reluctant nod spread across the crowd like a half-hearted Mexican wave. Brilliant, said the doctor, clapping his hands together. Because you need to defend yourselves. Lock yourselves away. Don't go looking for a fight. And if you have anything iron in your homes, absolutely anything at all, use it. That's their weakness. He could hear a disapproving murmur brewing. Any questions, he asked. Yes, called one of the men. What are you going to do? I'm going to end this, the doctor announced. Now then, any others? Anything at all? As he looked round the villagers, the doctor suddenly caught sight of Nate standing amongst them. His eyes seemed to be asking an altogether different question. Where was she, doctor? His beloved charity. Was she safe? But before the doctor could bring himself to offer any kind of answer, another voice disturbed him, drawing his attention back to the mob at large. Tell me, the voice demanded gruffly, why should we let you take on these demons instead of us? These creatures are like nothing any of you have ever seen before, the doctor insisted. They're not demons, they're not animals, but they are extremely intelligent. They will rip out your souls, feast upon your carcasses and change you into creatures just like them. But we're men, aren't we? An older man screamed back at him. We can fight our own battles. Who's with me? The crowd cheered raucously in agreement. In which case, the doctor warned them bluntly, you die, tonight. Before the men could even begin to argue, an ominous rumble filled the air, cutting them off, like a thunderclap, but somehow different, like it was emanating from all around them.
not from above. The doctor watched with the villagers as a massive bolt of lightning struck the abbey in the distance, throttling its way along the spire. Then he realised there was something wrong, something odd about it. The abbey wasn't being struck by lightning at all. Instead, the lightning was being shot into the sky from the abbey, an electrical pulse that lasted mere fractions of a second. He watched as the chaotic arcs of energy connected with the clouds, spreading out across the sky above them, and then down. The doctor watched in awe as the sheets of lightning fell back into the earth, a good few miles away, as if they were following some existing pattern, some kind of shape. A dome. Of course, the doctor realised. That's brilliant! A force field created from the abbey, cutting everywhere off. But why this place? And why block out all the light? He noticed the other villagers staring at him blankly. Yeah, he apologised, sucking in the air between his teeth. I could try and explain, only you wouldn't understand, and you'd probably mistake me for a demon again, so I won't. Now please, I'm asking you nicely, just go back to your homes and do as you're told. There's a nice mob, and remember most important of all, iron. And with that, the doctor started running. The villagers stood their ground as the thick, unearthly mist rolled in around them, half in protest, half in ignorance. They'd never seen anything like it before. It was as if the fog itself was alive somehow, glowing eerily, pulsating like a heartbeat, bringing something with it through the darkness. A few of the villagers returned to their homes. Some decided to follow the doctor's orders, barricading the doors and windows, locking themselves away. Others returned with pitchforks and other household implements, anything they had to hand, anything they might yet be able to defend themselves with. They looked around the square, brandishing their makeshift weapons like swords, just waiting for their enemy to strike, the mist having now engulfed the village completely. Wherever they turned, the thick white haze obscured their vision, limiting it to just a few metres ahead of them. And yet, in the distance, a few of them could see something. Tully noticed it first, like a pair of blue specks hanging in the air on the other side of the square. Then Mr Bradshaw spotted them, followed by Mr Phillips and Mr Thorpe. Within moments, the entire mob had their eyes fixed on the strange pair of lights leering at them from the other side of the village, which meant they didn't notice the second pair of lights appear behind them, or the others spreading out around them. In fact, it was only when they saw five pairs of the glowing specks lined up ahead of them that they realised they had been surrounded. Wherever they turned, they were there, hanging in the air, their enemies' cold blue eyes burning through the gloom. Suddenly, the men saw a snatch of blue shoot past them, leaping through the air, knocking Tully to the ground with a smack. He screamed as the creature started feasting on him, clawing at his flesh, scratching at his clothes, running its fangs across his neck with a savage sense of glee. The other men stepped back, rallying themselves, looking for some kind of sanctuary, but they couldn't see anything the pinpricks of blue light blinking in the darkness ahead of them. Tully's scream stopped suddenly with a whimper, and they knew he must be dead. They could even see the creature looking up at them, hunger in its eyes, almost as if it was trying to work out who'd be next. Then something interrupted them. Now the screams had stopped, the men could hear something else approaching through the woods, the steady thud of hooves across the earth. As they looked up, they could see four more specks of blue thundering into the village, the Barvon she and Henry, the horse's eyes glowing just like hers. 
The men looked on in horror as she rode into the centre of the square, screaming out her orders through the darkness. None must be allowed to speak of our existence, she roared, blood already dripping down her lips. Our ranks shall spread themselves across the earth in secret. A dominion ruled by darkness, with this township at the centre of our empire. She smiled at the crowd of terrified men in front of her. Purge this place, she commanded. Go and feed upon this world. The Barvon women's howls echoed round the village as the men shrank back into the mist looking for escape. But all they could see were the missing women of their village, treading steadily closer, closing in around them. Then the screaming started. By the time the doctor reached the abbey, he could already hear the villagers' cries howling on the wind. Maybe one day someone might listen to him, he thought. They might learn to take his advice and save themselves. He pulled the sonic screwdriver from his jacket pocket, but he had no chance to activate it. The doors to the abbey flew open almost automatically, groaning under their own weight. How'd you do that? he asked. Then he noticed a figure in the doorway, tall and cowled. The hood of his thick, dark robe draped across his eyes, hiding them from sight. The doctor stepped forwards, holding out a hand, the sonic screwdriver still clutched tightly in the other. Hello there, he said, circling round the stranger. Really sorry to disturb you like this. You must be the abbot. The figure nodded solemnly, gesturing for the doctor to step inside. Thank you, the doctor said, following him through the doors. And I meant what I said. I really am very sorry, but I need to look around, if you don't mind. The abbot threw his hands open in response, motioning round the abbey, granting the doctor access to anywhere and everywhere he wanted. At least that's how the doctor chose to interpret it. Brilliant, the doctor smiled, as he aimed the sonic screwdriver round the chamber, down the nave, along the aisles. It whirred as he walked, then started bleating more steadily as he stepped into the apse. He followed its signal slowly round the room when he found a staircase hidden in a corner tucked away leading down into a crypt beneath the abbey itself. Bingo, the doctor grinned, thrusting the sonic screwdriver back into his pocket. Then he turned to the abbot, already knowing he wouldn't get a reply, but still. Wish me luck, he beamed. The abbot smiled and watched as the doctor disappeared down the staircase, vanishing into the gloom beneath them. Then there was silence. Back in the heart of Thornton Rising, the screams had stopped just for a minute. Amidst the chaos of the initial attacks, the villagers had spread themselves across the village square, losing track of one another in the mist. Now many of them were alone, trying desperately to escape, hoping beyond hope that the Barvon might kill their friends before themselves. But this was all part of the game. The Barvon she knew how the men would react. She knew how to strike terror in their hearts. Now the villagers had seen what they were capable of. She was dragging out their deaths. Now each of them knew how they were going to die. She could hear them even now scurrying across the square, trying to keep quiet. Some of them even trying not to breathe. But she knew that they were there. She could taste them. Their hearts throbbing, blood racing, their pathetic human fear filling the air. And she enjoyed it. If she could make this last forever, then she would. For the time being, she was content to watch them turn on one another just as she knew humans always would. Whenever she sensed their feeble hearts beginning to slow, whenever they threatened to relax, even for a moment, she would send another of her sisters out to pick them off, one by one, 
all to let the others know how slow their deaths would be. And their deaths were inevitable now. There was no escape from the Barvon Shi. Each man could be next, or he could be last, but each would die. And the longer the wait for death, the greater that sense of dread became. Until some of them would simply die of fright. Now enough time had passed. She could feel them starting to calm themselves again. And so she gestured to another of her sisters. Almost instantly a man's scream could be heard ripping across the night. Then the Barvon Shi heard another sound, buried beneath the shrieking. A man's footsteps crossing the village square. It was Nate. Even now he was still searching for Charity. Desperately trying to find her before they did. He only knew it was too late when he turned to find himself face to face with another of the creatures. Its cool sapphire eyes glaring into him. Finally he'd found her. Charity? He asked, his voice now riddled with confusion. But the creature simply held a long, cold finger to his lips and hushed him, refusing to answer. Maybe she didn't know if she was Charity Wentworth anymore. She'd changed so much, so quickly. Who knew what she was? Then he felt her take his hand into hers. Dance with me, she whispered into his ear. Please. Nate knew he shouldn't, that this creature wasn't his wife anymore. And yet, he knew he wouldn't be able to refuse her. He never could. A cold drop of water hit the top of the doctor's head, causing him to yelp as he stepped further into the chamber ahead of him. He looked around, holding out the sonic screwdriver, hoping he might spot some sort of clue within the crypt. But it was clear that centuries of neglect had not been kind to it. The room was dark, dank, the freezing temperatures, a constant reminder that he was now deep beneath the earth. And yet, as he felt his way deeper into the darkness, he could tell the walls were smooth, polished, not stone at all, and they hummed with a faint trace of energy, nothing obvious, nothing that might draw attention to itself, just everyday background activity, the simple signs of a spaceship on standby. Then the doctor thought he heard the wall click in front of him, so he waved the sonic screwdriver across it, and it clicked again. Must be some kind of locking mechanism, he thought. He ran his fingers quickly over the wall, where he could just about make out the vague shape of a door set into the panels. He stepped back, adjusting the settings on the sonic screwdriver, aiming it directly at the wall ahead of him. It clicked again, then again, and again, like a series of sophisticated bolts unlocking themselves from within. When the sequence stopped, the doctor watched with fascination as a panel slid back into the grooves of the wall, revealing a brand new room hidden away behind it. He peered through the hatch. It was the flight deck. He recognised elements of it from the crash, from when he'd felt the memories of the Barvon Shi in his. Now he saw it all in front of him again. The complex terminals and machinery charred and devastated on impact. The entire room bathed in the dull blue glow of emergency lighting. Only a handful of cracked video screens still flickering with any kind of activity. The doctor immediately ran across to one of the panels, examining it with a sonic screwdriver, trying to coax it back to life. He'd guessed there was something strange about the Abbey from the moment he saw it. There was something about the shape, as though it had been built around another structure first. Though he hadn't quite expected that structure to be an advanced form of extraterrestrial spacecraft. He continued to examine the equipment exploring each and every panel, when one of the terminals suddenly chirped into life beside him. 
It had already been active, and quite recently too. The doctor watched as facts and figures flickered across the screen, information massing, gathering, collecting itself together in front of his very eyes. Most of it useless, some of it useful. Life support protocols, defence mechanisms, details of the bar von ceremonial dining etiquette, and a computer programme. A protective shield that had been set up around the village, not to keep things out, but to keep people in. That's what he'd seen outside, of course. An electrical pulse, transmitted through the air at regular intervals to maintain a barrier. And if it had been programmed in just the right way, then maybe... Yes! The doctor's hands rattled across the keyboard as he called up even more information about the programme, what it did, what it was capable of. And he was right. It had been programmed to corrupt the optical spectrum round the village, not exactly blocking out the light, but filtering it, stopping it getting through. He'd seen creatures like this before, races that were photosensitive, that could be destroyed by different forms of light, some infrared, others extonic, in this case, ultraviolet. That's why the Barvon she had set the programme up, to protect herself. Which meant, if he switched it off... The doctor shook his head. He couldn't do it. If he did, the Barvon women wouldn't stand a chance. Even if they endured just the briefest exposure to sunlight, they'd be reduced to dust after a matter of minutes. And that included charity. She was still in the early stages of conversion, he thought. Maybe he could save her somehow, reverse the process. There was always hope, wasn't there? Another scream cracked through the air and suddenly there wasn't any doubt. He had to do it. He stabbed a series of keys on the terminal again, rifling through its complex array of security procedures. He ran the sonic screwdriver across the edges of the screen, altering its instructions, disabling the shield above the village. There was no going back. Not now. Then confirmation flickered across the screen in front of him. The barrier had been terminated, its defensive capabilities disabled. Permanently. And yet the screaming continued. He could hear it from outside. Not the Barvon she and her sisters but the same man he'd heard before, one of the villagers. Something had gone wrong. As the doctor ran from the abbey, it struck him almost instantly. He could tell from the sky that the barrier had been lowered. Stars now twinkled faintly between the clouds, and the moon hung heavy in the sky. But it was October. The days were short, and a new dawn had yet to rise. There was still hope, though. Even now he could just about make out the faintest hint of daylight on the horizon, all he had to do was buy them some time, let nature take its course. If it wasn't already too late. The screams grew steadily louder as he darted back into the village square, the Barvon she still playing her vicious game of hide-and-seek through the fog. But she heard him, skidding through the gravel. She recognised his scent. And for the first time that night, the villagers weren't the only ones to be afraid. Listen to me. The doctor screamed. I've disabled the barrier. You can leave, all of you. You just have to run. The Barvon she howled in rage to her sisters. Kill them all, she shrieked. Not one man must be left alive. Suddenly the air was filled with bodies flying across the village square. The Barvon women leaping on their prey, picking them off one by one. But the villagers had hope now, and they were already running faster and faster making it even more difficult for the Barvon creatures to track them through the mist. Even when one of the creatures did get lucky, most of the men were already moving fast enough to shake them off and lose them in all the confusion. Head for the east, the doctor ordered. 
He watched as the villagers did as they were told, their feet scrambling helplessly across the gravel paths. Then he saw the Barvon Shi approaching through the mist, looking proudly down at him from the safety of her saddle. And what makes you think you're so safe, Doctor? She sneered. Oh, nothing, the Doctor smiled. Though I did borrow these from the Abbey. He pulled a pair of ornate wrought iron door handles from the confines of his pockets, holding them out, keeping her at arm's length. The Barvon Shi snorted angrily at him and the pair started circling one another in the centre of the square, the chaos of battle raging all around them. It's only a matter of time now, the doctor told her. Until what? she hissed. Until the daylight catches up with you. Already he could see some of the Barvan creatures giving up the chase, running back into the safety of the village, their bodies starting to smoulder as they fled into the shadows. There's nowhere like this for miles, the doctor continued, and all the buildings are locked, nowhere safe for you to hide. You're exposed to the elements. Suddenly a scream erupted from the shadows behind him as one of the Barvon women burst into a ball of yellow flame. The doctor saw the flash flicker across the eyes of the Barvon she. You think this is the end for us? She asked. I don't just think, the doctor told her. I know. Already he could feel the warm glow of the sun's rays on his face, comforting him, reassuring him that he'd made the right decision. A sensation he knew must have been agony for her. And yet she stood her ground, the screams of her sisters still echoing around them. You made this happen, she reminded him, smoke already rising from her shoulders. Our race stops because of you. I know, the doctor agreed as he took a step towards her, gently patting Henry on the muzzle. And I'm so, so sorry. Because the doctor knew what was coming next. The dark veil had dropped. Their time had come. And he watched as the Barvon Shi began to blister, tears now rolling down her cheeks, boiling away against her flesh, her once powerful body wasting away beneath the sun, evaporating as a new day dawned. She looked to the doctor, her cold blue eyes now faltering. What right have you to do this? She demanded weakly but the doctor couldn't answer. Instead, he simply turned away, trying to forget. About her, about charity, about so many different people and places and times. Nine centuries worth of regret. Your time is yet to come, Time Lord, the Barvon She screamed with her dying breath. And sooner than you think, then the doctor felt a sudden blast of heat on the back of his neck. And he knew at once that it was over. For a good while afterwards, the doctor simply sat there, alone in the village square, waiting for the mist to clear, the day to dawn, surveying the devastation all around him. Dead men were strewn across the village where they lay, their bodies drained of blood. Their terrified eyes still open wide as though searching for someone to save them. But no one could. There was no longer any sign of the Barvon Shi or her sisters. Only mounds of ash and bone, charred by the sun. And even those remains soon vanished, scattered on the breeze, lost forever to the winds. He'd had to do it. The doctor watched each grain of ash sweep by closed each of the dead men's eyes. The minutes passed, 
so slowly they seemed like hours. Then a lone voice broke the silence, a voice the doctor recognised at once. It belonged to the only man still left in Thornton Rising. The one man he'd known would never flee, not for anything in the world, not for charity. But she was gone now, just like the rest of them. Doctor! He tried desperately to ignore it, but the voice called out again, cracking gently under the stress of what had happened. Doctor! Then footsteps, a man running towards him. Nathaniel. The doctor bowed his head towards the ground and turned to face him. I really am so, so sorry. Don't be, Nate interrupted, a look of desperation on his face. Just promise me you'll help me. Help my charity. I can't, the doctor told him weakly. Don't you see? But he didn't fully understand what Nate was telling him. She danced with me, doctor, Nate explained, pointing urgently back towards their home. She danced with me to save me from the others. His gestures were growing more frantic now. She spared my life, so I saved hers. She's at home right now, cowering in the shadows, waiting for me, and you. He swallowed hard as the doctor's gaze met his. She doesn't want to die, he choked. Do you think that maybe you could help her? Please. The doctor looked towards the house, then back to Nate. Yes, he promised, taking in the deepest of breaths. I think I can help. I just need to track something down first. Something I lost on the moors. Minutes passed, then hours. Nate looking after Charity all the while, when suddenly there was a cold, harsh series of raps on their door. And as he went to answer, Nate found himself confronted by a tall, forbidding figure in the doorway. His silhouette blocked out against the sunlight. It was the doctor. Behind him, Nate could just about see a tall blue box standing in the middle of the village square not so far away. Perhaps that contained the tools of his trade, Nate thought. Perhaps the doctor could help save Charity after all. Neither said a word as the doctor stepped inside, the door creaking slowly shut behind him. Charity was skulking in the shadows now, just as Nate had said. So pitiful and scared. The skin on her hands faintly blistered where they'd been struck by daylight, where she had held them up against the sun to protect herself. She whimpered lowly as the doctor approached. Leave us, he ordered Nate, knowing it was the hardest request for a husband to meet. Please. And for the sake of his wife, Nate did as he was asked and left. The doctor removed the sonic screwdriver from his pocket and studied his patient. He crouched down beside her and took her in his arms. Are you all right? he asked. But Charity didn't reply. Instead, she looked the doctor over once again, her cold, sapphire eyes still burning fiercely in their sockets. Nate told me you dance with him, he said softly. Is that right? She nodded. I had her mind in mine, remember? Charity replied. I knew what they'd do to him if I didn't. The head of the sonic screwdriver retreated back into its handle and the doctor thrust it back inside his jacket. There was no way of reversing the process. The conversion was too far gone. I meant what I said before, she told him, interrupting his train of thought. About your world, about all the worlds I saw burning so brightly in the heavens. And you were right. From the very beginning you warned me about yourself, what you are, what you do to people. Perhaps you are a real demon after all. 
He just wants you to be safe, the doctor said. I know. Charity sat in silence for a moment, looking round her kitchen. At the stove, the table, the chairs, the crockery. This had been her world before today. Her entire life trapped in just one room, in just one house, in just one village. But now she knew there was more to life than this. People will soon return to this place, won't they, Doctor? Yes, he answered simply. And when they do, what will they make of me? I think you already know the answer to that. Don't you? He sighed. But I can help. I can take you away from here. Both of you, if that's what you want. You and Nate. You could start a new life together, anywhere in the universe. On a planet where the sun need never rise. A world consumed by darkness. Just one trip. That's all it'd take. Charity remembered how the doctor had made the very same offer to the Barvon she herself. And she remembered what he'd done when she refused. All her life she yearned for something more, wished for something beyond her understanding. And now, now she found herself drowning in a million new sensations, her newfound perspective on life threatening to overwhelm her. And it was hurting her. She caught herself sobbing between breaths, gently choking on decisions she didn't want to make. Then the doctor rested a reassuring hand on her shoulder and she turned to face him. I can't ruin his life too, she said. Her eyes seemed softer now, more human, their fierce contempt smouldering away like the embers of a fire, teardrops glimmering gently in the gloom. I only ever moved out here so I could be with him, she continued. Maybe if I hadn't... I know, the doctor hushed, holding her close to him. Believe me, I know. They sat for a minute, comforting one another in the darkness. When suddenly the doctor stood abruptly, she looked up. He was holding out his hand. So, the doctor asked. Which is it to be? Thornton rising? Or the rest of the universe? Charity didn't have an answer to give him. Not just yet. But still she took his hand, allowing the doctor to haul her to her feet. By the time Nate returned, Charity and the Doctor were nowhere to be seen. The TARDIS doors swung open and the Doctor bounded idly up the ramp to the control console. Good, isn't it? he asked, leaving Charity to follow up behind him. But she just stood there lingering in the doorway, utterly speechless. Is that a good open-mouthed or a bad open-mouthed? he asked. I never can tell anymore. Good, I think she stammered as she edged into the TARDIS, following the doctor up the ramp one careful, cautious step at a time. She struggled to take it all in at first. The size, the scale of it. This massive space, sounds flitting all around her. She looked up. A bright, unearthly light shone through a series of small round windows picked out in the strangely textured walls, and the walls themselves curved inwards, joining with one another in the roof to form one massive inner dome. Where they met at the centre of the structure, a column of pure white energy shot down to the floor through the central console, gathering together in a tall glass tube. And Charity could feel it. In the air beneath the walls, power crackling at the heart of the chamber. Is this the world you spoke of? she asked. No, this is the TARDIS, 
best transport the universe has to offer. And with it, I can take you anywhere in time and space. And oh, so much more. Charity wiped a tear from the corner of her eye. What do you think? he asked. Reckon this is something you could live with? It's still your choice, remember? I know, Charity reassured him. And I want to choose. Good. Because you're not just dropping me off on the first world we come to. If I do this, if we do this, I want to be able to make a proper choice, to find a world that's right for me. A world where I might still believe I'm who I used to be. Do you think we could do that? Just one trip, that's what I said, the doctor reminded her. Then a smile spread across his face. Mind you, I suppose if we were to bend the rules a little, one trip could still extend to a thousand different worlds. Unless, of course, I don't know. You already happen to have somewhere specific in mind? Charity shook her head. Not a clue. Well, that's that then. The doctor clapped his hands excitedly, dashing round the console, his feet skittering over the TARDIS's grated floor. We'll find you that right world, Charity, I promise. And probably quite a few wrong ones, come to think of it. But remember, now you're here, we've got all the time in the world. Literally. The doctor shot her one of his massive, childish grins, then Charity glanced back towards the door. There's still time to say goodbye, he told her quietly, if you want to. His hands hesitated momentarily over the handbrake. Do you want to? But Charity shook her head. I know my perfect world's on the other side of those doors right now, she said. And if I go out there, if I even try to say goodbye to him, I'll never want to leave. And that's not fair on either of us, is it? But the doctor didn't answer. He didn't need to. Instead, his long spidery fingers scurried quickly across the console, twisting and tweaking the controls beneath his hands. Finally, he slammed the handbrake down, hard. I'd hold tight if I were you, he warned, whooping enthusiastically with the sound of the ship's engines. Second most perfect world in the universe, here we come! And in spite of all the tears now rolling down her cheeks, Charity couldn't help but smile back at him. A strange, alien doctor, who had all of a sudden made her life worth living who, against all odds, had saved her. Nathaniel Wentworth stood alone in the cold, watching as the tall blue box vanished from existence before his very eyes. Temporal winds lashed gently at his face, and the strange, otherworldly wheezing and groaning somehow told him he would never see his wife again. She'd made her decision, and he didn't doubt for a second that it had been the right one, for both of them. In that moment, Charity Wentworth ceased to exist forevermore, leaving in her wake the most beautiful sunset the world had ever seen. Golden orange clouds burnt deep into the sky, etched across the heavens. Nate struggled hard against the tears, sighing softly to himself. Till death do us part, he whispered, hoping somehow that Charity might hear him but she never did. She was already over a million light years away, across the stars on the furthest fringes of an unknown galaxy, living on a world without light, without him. But she would always remember. They both would.
Doctor Who, The Rising Night was written by Scott Hancock and was read by Michelle Ryan. It was produced by Kate Thomas and is published by BBC Audiobooks.